So a very warm welcome to you all. Uh, thank you for joining us. My name is Christy Lowe. I'm a research associate specialising in social protection at ODI. Uh, for those of you who don't know, ODI is a global independent think tank that harnesses the power of research, evidence and ideas to confront global challenges and help address, develop solutions and create change. Uh, before we get started, a couple of housekeeping points. Uh, there is Arabic interpretation and there will be some Arabic speakers during the event. Uh, so please do uh, choose which language you want to listen in between English and Arabic in the interpretation menu at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Uh, please also note that we will be recording this event and share it on our website, uh, though the written Q&A won't be visible in that recording. Today, we are delighted to be launching our new report on social protection provisions for migrant workers in the GCC, which is the first ever regional mapping of provisions on paper and in practice. Uh, it was produced by the ILO and ODI in collaboration with the IOM. And uh, in terms of the agenda, I'll just bring it up there. Um, we are delighted to begin with some opening remarks from Shara Razavi, the director of ILO's social protection department. Uh, we will then hear a 15 minute presentation of the research from my co-authors, Leah and Jessica. And then for the rest of the session, we'll be delving into this topic in more detail, including through two panels and also closing remarks uh, from our excellent guest speakers. I'm going to save the introductions of them until uh, they speak, but we're really grateful to have such a fantastic lineup and many thanks to all of you for joining. We also know from the Zoom attendance list that we actually have a lot of knowledge in the audience as well. Uh, so we do encourage you to send in your questions throughout the event via the Zoom Q&A function. And we'll try to get to as many as possible of those uh, in the two Q&A discussion slots. Uh, so that is uh, all from me. Uh, and now it's my pleasure to hand over to Shara Razavi. Uh, thank you, Shara. I'll just uh, try and stop sharing my screen here. Uh, just one second. Or you can screen, keep the screen on. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it should. Yeah, uh, hopefully it's stopped now. There we go. Thanks. Great, great, great. Thanks very much, Christy. And it's great to be uh, here with, with all of you. Uh, I'm really, really pleased to be joining you for this online event uh, on, a, on a topic that is you know, critical, obviously, to the region, but also beyond the region. Uh, I think the title of our event uh, sort of poses the question that we're all really concerned about very directly and bluntly, you know, what rights can migrant workers access in practice? Uh, and unfortunately, as uh, many of you know very well, for the millions of migrant workers who are making amazing contributions to our economies and societies, access to social protection is a major challenge. Um, if this wasn't already very clear to many people, I think the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, was a great uh, kind of revelation and revealer of uh, the, the really big hurdles that migrants face. Um, when they need uh, uh, such uh, access very badly. Uh, and this became very clear, you know, in many, in many regions, including in the GCC. Now, I think from an ILO perspective, these issues have been absolutely there from the beginning of the organization, from its very inception 
1919, it was very clear that the ILO uh, you know, constitution actually recognized the importance of uh, protecting the rights of workers when they were employed in countries other than their countries of origin. This was a problem then, uh, and it continues to be a problem now. Uh, in fulfillment of its mandate and this promise that it made of uh, trying to make access to social protection uh, possible for workers, even when they were not in their countries of origin, the ILO has adopted over the many decades since its inception more than 100 years ago, several conventions and recommendations that I think provide very clear, uh, a sort of very solid legal foundation and also very useful guidance for uh, policymakers to design the kind of laws and policies that they need uh, to extend social protection to migrant workers and uh, their families. And, and, and these legal provisions also give effect, I think, to the principle of equal treatment, which is absolutely core to uh, the many conventions and recommendations that we have in respect of the right to social security. Now, it's not like nothing has happened. And even though many positive st steps have been taken, we all know that there are still uh, uh, many challenges in extending social protection to migrant workers. In the GCC, where uh, migrant workers do make up a very substantial share of the workforce, um, it's obviously all the more imperative to really better understand the current state of social protection coverage of migrant workers and also better understand the kind of barriers that stand uh, in their way. So in that light, I think uh, the regional mapping uh, that has been done uh, on social protection provisions in terms of you know, both law and practice, which was prepared in the context of this very rich collaborations that Kirsty also referred to of ILO with ODI and with IOM, uh, it's great that we have the first of its kind, uh, you know, a, a mapping to really assess this topic in a very structured and very comprehensive way. The report is one of the products uh, of this SDC funded project, the title of which is Extending Social Protection to Migrant Workers, Exploratory Research and Policy Dialogue in the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. And we really would like to take this opportunity to reiterate our appreciation for the critical support that the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation has provided for us, which really enabled this forward-looking document to be researched and to be uh, brought together, which I think will be an amazing public good, not only for the three agencies that authored it, but also uh, more widely. Now, I think by improving the state of knowledge that we have on this topic, the report really has the aim of facilitating uh, informed dialogue between stakeholders uh, across the migration corridor and provide insights into the potential reforms that can be had, both legal and policy, with the aim of really contributing uh, you know, to the main goal that we have, which is to extend social protection uh, to migrant workers so they can access it easily uh, in line with international social security standards that we have. Uh, we know that many reforms have taken place across the region, uh, which are granting migrant workers legal access, uh, even if it is to, for the time being, a limited range of social protection benefits. Uh, and these signs of change and reform, I think, are very encouraging and do represent a really important shift in the policy scan uh, landscape, uh, which could bring very concrete and palpable benefits 
uh, not only to migrant workers and their families, but also for many employers uh, who rely on this migrant workforce, as well as to governments uh, and economies and societies at large. However, uh, and this is the big issue that I think we want to kind of explore in more depth uh, during this uh, webinar, the gap between uh, law and practice in social protection remains uh, very, uh, very wide. Uh, as we will see in the presentation this afternoon, the impact of new legislation remains limited as it doesn't always translate into um, effective access due to the different barriers uh, that we will be exploring today what they are. Uh, governments of destination and origin countries, both workers and employers organizations, diplomatic missions uh, and civil society, we, you know, we all think all of them have really critical roles to play in really enabling uh, much more effective access uh, for migrant workers to social protection in the region uh, and to make sure that this effective protection is maintained, uh, strengthened and made more comprehensive over time. Uh, strengthening explicit and structured platforms uh, for tripartite dialogue between uh, state actors and workers and employers organizations is absolutely key in this regard. And it's, of course, always critical and really important to listen to and really understand uh, the views and preferences of migrant workers themselves, which often speak to the reality of the barriers that they face in making uh, legal rights uh, you know, palpable and concrete to help policymakers and, and, and civil society actors and social partners really design policies and agreements that can in the end you know, work uh, for the workers and, and their families. Now, we as the ILO, we stand ready to support the GCC countries in the efforts that they're undertaking to improve both uh, de jure and de facto protection of migrant workers. And I have to say that despite the tragic situation in Gaza today and the many repercussions that it's going to have for the entire region, uh, the ILO uh, stands ready to continue striving for lasting peace and social justice in this region and beyond. And on that note, let me hand it back over to you, Christy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Shara. Uh, we will now turn with no further ado to two authors of the co uh, of the report, um, Lea Bukata from the ILO and Jessica Hagenzanka from ODI, who are going to share some of the key findings and insights. Uh, and right after that will be a quick fire Q&A session. So please do submit your questions while uh, they're presenting uh, and then we'll get to those uh, right afterwards. So over to you. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Christy. We will now present some findings of the flagship report released today on the social protection for migrant workers in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. The report is based on an extensive legal and literature review in both English and Arabic, and more than 50 semi-structured interviews conducted in the region. It examines existing legal provisions, including the most recent reforms, and it investigates the extent of ex effective access to provisions whenever they are afforded. It also identifies enablers and barriers to legal and effective access, so the URE and de facto. The report will be available in Arabic by the end of the year. In addition to this flagship report, we will share some results of a companion study also released today that delves into issues of effective access of Nepali migrant workers who worked in the GCC. 
The presentation is an invitation to explore both reports for much more information on the topic. So the report first examines legal entitlements. Let's look together at this visual that charts in a simplified way the legal entitlements of workers in the private sector, be it employment injury or medical benefit. You can see all the benefits listed in the very first column. The visual is divided into parts. On the left are the entitlements specific to nationals. On the right, those of migrant workers. The entitlements are color-coded, as you can see, depending on the, financial, uh, the financing mo uh, model. So there are four main take-home messages. Uh, the white cells indicate the absence of social protection. They are more present on the migrant worker side which shows that migrant workers have less entitlements than nationals and that some benefits are quasi inexistent for migrant workers across the region. The light blue is the code for employer liability schemes and it is predominant for migrant workers, as you can see, which means that whenever entitlements exist, they tend to be employer liability schemes, whereby the employer individually bears the responsibility of protecting the workers. Employer liability approaches have major limitations they focus on short-term risks, they are marred with power asymmetry, and do not rest on solidarity and financing. They are also characterized by cumbersome dispute and labor litigation processes. The red cells reveal mandatory private insurance schemes, and they are concentrated on their medical care, the role of medical care, as you can see. This shows how the privatization of healthcare is trending up, such schemes are not aligned with principles of universality or solidarity. They are characterized with individual risk management and have excessive fragmentation and they increase the cost. Now, the second darkest blue, so the darker shade, is a code of contributory social insurance schemes, which are limited under the migrant worker side of the table. Migrant workers tend to be excluded from social insurance schemes. However, uh, where you see a series of blue cells, that would be the Sultanate of Oman, where groundbreaking reforms have recently extended social insurance to migrant workers. Uh, Shabib Boussaidi from uh, Oman, who is with us today, will tell us more about these reforms in the panel discussion that will follow. But I would like to quickly highlight that in July of this year, Oman enacted a new social protection law developed with the support of the ILO, which radically reshapes the social protection system. In the next slide, you will see that when it comes to migrant workers, this new social protection system provides for the gradual inclusion of migrant workers in social insurance cash benefits for maternity, paternity, sickness, and employment injury insurance. It also establishes a national provident fund to, repl to replace the current end of service indemnity system. There are other reforms taking place in the region. In the next slide, you will see that, for instance, Bahrain has recently replaced end-of-service indemnity with contributions to social insurance. The UAE also has just enacted a voluntary pension as an alternative to end-of-service indemnity, so on and so forth. The report reviews such reforms against social security uh, standards, notably the principles of universality, adequacy, comprehensiveness, sustainability, so on and so forth. Now, we are often asked the same question whenever we present or discuss the reforms in the region. What are the drivers of reforms? The report provides some answers that are charted uh, very flatly in this infographic. Um, first, we consider the channels for migrant worker representation and advocacy to be an enabler of legal reforms. 
Second, the results show that international attention and commitments are drivers of legal access. And third, the COVID-19 itself has triggered some form of extensions. But there are, of course, obstacles to reforms. In terms of impediments, we consider in this report that the design of the migration system is one of the main structural impediments to change when we talk about the kafala system. Second, the report highlights the political economy challenges when it comes to making such reforms. And finally, the limited representation and bargaining power of migrant workers are considered as a central barrier. The report goes one step further and acknowledges that even when legal entitlements exist, it does not necessarily translate to effective de facto access. And the report underlines three key elements that function either as enablers or as obstacles to effective access. First, the awareness of social protection provision. Second, the monitoring of employers' compliance to such provisions. And third, the mechanism to facilitate their enforcement. Of course, the design, again, of the migration system emerges as a factor that hinder um, the access to social protection. With these identified factors and backlog, Jessica will now tell us about the implementation of the Europe provision and the extent of effective social protection. Over to you, Jessica. Thank you, Leah. Um, let me start with the headline finding. We found that there are significant gaps between the social provisions enshrined in legislation and migrant workers' actual access to such provisions, although the, favor, the picture is more favorable in some areas than in others. In the remaining presentation, I'm going to focus on the four contingencies where migrant workers have the strongest legal entitlements, health coverage, sickness leave, employment injury, and end of service benefits. I will draw on the key informant interviews and secondary data included in our regional mapping report. And as we found literal comparative quantitative data on migrant workers' access to social protection in practice, earlier this year, we conducted a survey with a thousand Nepalese return migrants who had previously worked in the GCC alongside qualitative interviews. And I will also draw um, on some of the findings from that research. We focused on Nepalese return migrants as they're one of the key nationalities working in the DCC. Migrant workers from different countries of origin tend to have somewhat dis disparate experiences and access to social protection. So while our findings from the Nepal survey are indicative of broader trends, they're not directly transferable to other nationalities. In the slides that follow, we will not just discuss the extent to which Nepalese migrant workers have access in practice as a group, but we'll also disaggregate the findings by gender of the respondent and by their wage level in the DCC. So um, starting with health insurance coverage, at present, on paper, migrant workers employed in the formal private sector are entitled to health insurance coverage funded by their employer throughout the DCC, except in the five Emirates of the UAE. In the regional mapping report, we found that while access to health insurance systems seems to have generally improved over the last decade, we also saw that even if migrant workers are covered by a health insurance policy on paper, this doesn't necessarily translate to access to medical care in practice. And Leia talked about some of the barriers earlier. Coming to the Nepal survey, we found that on average, 74% of respondents 
reported that they had been registered for health insurance or another coverage for medical care when they worked in the GCC. The survey data therefore presents a fairly positive picture, confirming the general trend towards improvement of migrant workers' registration for health coverage in recent years. Breaking this data down by gender shows that only 51% of women migrants were registered for health coverage compared to 76% of men. And higher income migrants in the sample had significantly higher registrations for health coverage than those with lower incomes. Moving on to sickness coverage. Coming to sickness coverage, migrant workers in full-time private sector employment have the right to sickness leave on the same terms as nationals through standard employer liability provisions. In our mapping report, the evidence indicates that when sick migrant workers are not consistently able to take paid time off, either because of the employer's lack of awareness or compliance, or the employees' fear of losing wages or their job. In the Nepal survey, we also found a more negative picture than for health coverage. On average, only about half of our respondents reported that they were able to take sick leave always or most of the time when they needed it. For female migrants, this proportion drops down to a third. Women having worse de facto access to sick leave is in part likely related to the fact that many are employed as domestic workers for whom de jure um, leave provisions are weaker. There's also stark inequity in exercising sick leave rights by income level, with workers on the lowest income in the sample having much worse access. So 30% could take sick leave every or most of the time when they needed it compared to higher income earners for whom this proportion is 81%. In terms of sick leave payment, on the next slide, again, the survey points to access to gaps in practice. While workers should be paid while they're on sick leave, less than half of the sample were paid every time they were on sick leave. And access is again much lower for low-income migrants where there isn't that much of a difference by gender. Um, so moving on to employment injury, um, there are provisions for employment injury in national or regional labour laws in the GCC, which give migrants the right to receive medical treatment at the employer's expense after suffering a workplace injury. Generally, employees also have the right to be paid their salary for a certain period of time while recovering or undergoing treatment. And in some jurisdictions, employers are also required to pay compensation if the accident causes um, disability or death. Trends for employment injury in practice show that the de jure provisions are frequently not respected, both due to lack of awareness and neglect, um, with provisions often only observed when they're not too onerous on the employer. Our analysis in the mapping report also showed that the costs of treatment tended to be paid in many cases, but that employment injury compensation is frequently not paid. So um, in the Nepal survey, we also saw this. In our survey, only 80 of the 1,000 respondents reported an accident while in the GCC. So we have a much smaller sample here, and we need to approach the results um, with a bit of caution. 
one in six of those who had an accident reported that their employer paid for the full costs of treatment as they should, um, with a quarter reporting that they paid for the entire cost themselves. And the graph here shows that a third of these respondents reported that they did not receive any wages or only partial wages during recovery. So this again indicates some non-compliance with legal provisions. Moving on to post-employment provisions. Post-employment provisions are limited to so-called end-of-service indemnity benefits in each of the GCC countries. The exact terms of um, end-of-service benefits vary by country, but all require that a contract is completed. In the mapping report, we found that end-of-service benefits are often not paid, delayed, or paid only partially, especially in cases where companies face financial difficulties or bankruptcy, and um, this was quite common during the COVID-19 pandemic. Evidence from across the GCC indicated that employers often try to avoid paying end-of-service indemnity benefits with often few repercussions. In the Nepal analysis, we looked at those who finished their contract in the GCC, so they were all eligible for end-of-service benefits. And only just over half actually received the end-of-service indemnity benefits, as you can see in the graph. The rate of workers who received um, their end-of-service indemnity benefits was especially low for female migrants who only received these in 30% of the cases and for low-income workers. And given that this is the main provision migrant workers of all types are entitled to across all country, de facto coverage is very low, suggesting high levels of non-compliance. We also looked at access to justice. And um, in our research, we found that the power imbalances inherent in the kafala system, as well as numerous practical and bureaucratic barriers meant that access to and faith in justice mechanisms is very low. And then the power research also indicated very limited use of complaints and access to justice mechanisms in cases where work workers had not received their legal entitlements. So in the 43 cases where participants were not fully paid during sick leave, only three people made an official complaint. And in the 35 cases where participants did not receive their expected end of service indemnity amount, only four people made an official complaint. And of those who didn't complain, more than half thought it would not help, and a quarter feared the negative repercussions of filing a grievance. Today, we've given you a whistle-stop tour of some of the many insights we've produced in the past few years. Um, and in the reports, we've also laid out detailed policy recommendations that include steps to improve de jure protections as well as access and practice. And none of this will be possible without strengthening dialogue and collaboration. And um, please take a look at our publications and the project page for more detailed findings. Thank you. Great, thank you so much, uh, Jessica and Leah, for those uh, findings. We've been getting some questions in in the meantime. 
Um, so I am just going to uh, start um, first with a question um, that came in on the sectors that the study covered um, and whether it included domestic workers and whether the research found researchers found differences in protection based on the sector of employment. Uh, and I think um, we will be exploring that over the course of the webinar, but maybe just for an initial um, response to that, I'm going to go to uh, you, Jessica, if that's okay. Uh, take it away. So I can just give you a very quick response. So yes, we did look at um, all um, sectors and in our reports, you will also find all the results disaggregated by sector. Um, we we found that um, for domestic workers, the de jure provisions are a lot weaker. Um, and as a result of weaker de jure provisions, as well as a range of additional barriers for domestic workers, we also found that de facto provisions tend to be um, a lot weaker for domestic workers. Um, with regards to the Nepal survey, um, of course, many of the female migrants that were included in the interview and in general do work as domestic workers. So you can also um, take the, the findings you saw on female migrants in the presentation as a bit of a shorthand of what um, the findings would look like for domestic workers. Great, thank you. And there's actually a lot of questions that have come through, and I think they're actually only visible to the audience once we start replying to them. So don't worry if you, um, we will be getting to them also in the next Q&A session. Um, but one uh, that came through um, a couple of times, I'm gonna put to you, Leia. Uh, it's about um, how the initiatives to try to ensure or promote migrants' rights to association. Um, and not just through trade unions in the destination country. So um, do you have any comments on that? And also one other comment about whether we're planning to also cover Jordan uh, in this mapping in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Christy. Um, quickly to say that regarding Jordan, we don't know, but uh, the, the, the project is focused on the GCC, on the six GCC countries. Um, about the promotion through associations, there are, and we discussed this in our report, um, there are associations uh, in the region, whether it's cultural clubs or um, or other civil society organization. Of course, the numbers are not big, uh, but we document to the extent possible um, how useful are these associations specifically in terms of providing social informal types of social protection uh, whenever migrant workers uh, you know are, are in need and don't have access to the system but also these associations do play a role and also as we show in the report in raising awareness it's it's there's a network to raise awareness uh, to um, to, to, to channel information that we also refer to in the report and we we try to highlight the, the role they play to increase de facto access uh, of migrant workers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, we actually, we do have a lot of questions, but we're also um, trying to keep to a bit to our times. So I mean, I'm gonna go straight on now to the first of our two short panel discussions, um, which is going to delve into, well, both the discussions will delve into some of the areas covered in the report, inviting insights from 
several actors who are leading change in this space. Uh, and I'm going to invite uh, Luca Pellerano from the ILO, Senior Social Protection Specialist um, in the Regional Office for Arab States, who's going to moderate the first discussion, which is on policies and policy making on social protection for migrant workers in the GCC. So over to you, Luca. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christy. And uh, indeed, time to start to invite uh, some of our guests, panelists, to share their perspectives and views on the topic. I just want to share that when we started working on this subject uh, in partnership with the SDC just a couple of years ago, it was really, in a way, difficult to table a conversation on social protection for migrant workers in the GCC. And, and now, just two years uh, from, from then, we can really see how much momentum there has been in terms of ongoing reforms across the region, as has been highlighted in the presentation, but also how much more evidence there is of, of the need to work further on this agenda to really fill uh, these, these important remaining um, coverage gaps. And, and I, hopefully the panel will, will sort of also allow us to address some of the questions that are coming in the chat in terms of the role of different instruments, um, especially with a focus on the policies and, and policy making uh, space that is, that is emerging in, in the GCC. Um, so without further ado, um, I'm going to pass the floor to three very distinguished speakers. We have uh, Shabib uh, Al-Busaidi, who is a social insurance expert for the government of Oman and has been very much um, uh, one of the uh, uh, people very much involved and in driving force of the recent reform in Oman that Leah was alluding to. So welcome, Shabib. We then have Stefan Hertog. Stefan is an associate professor in the Department of Government at the LSE in, in London and has worked extensively on issues of labor market as well as welfare systems in the GCC. So we'll, we'll hear from him on that. And finally, I'm very pleased to also have with us uh, Tanya Dedovic, who is a colleague in the UN. Uh, Tanya works for the International uh, Organization for Migrations, and she's a regional thematic specialist on labor mobility and human development. So let's start uh, from you, Shabib. We have heard um, here about the current status of the legal entitlements for migrant workers and also some of the efforts to fill uh, these gaps, um, such as the recent reforms in Oman. Can you tell us what are the main changes that the new law brings to migrant workers in Oman and also what has driven these ambitious reforms? Dr. Loka. Thank you so much, Dr. Luca. I'm very pleased to be with you. Of course, uh, we had uh, been honored to work with you and uh, with the ILO when it comes uh, to the, um, the latest reforms uh, in Oman. Uh, the protection um, system had been launched in July of this year with the issuance of two laws. Uh, the first law on the social protection uh, fund, which covers certain aspects of the system, especially when it uh, relates uh, to um, uh, financial benefits and the social protection. The fund is also in charge of uh, covering other aspects of the social protection, including employment, uh, uh, rehabilitation, uh, social empowerment, and coordination with other entities like the Ministry of Labor, the Ministry of Social Affairs, or Social Development, and others. The other law is the social protection law, uh, which determines uh, the uh, monetary benefits uh, and the insurance benefits issued by um, the uh, social protection fund. 
probably uh, the main uh, reasoning uh, behind uh, the social protection uh, launch is uh, that uh, the uh, workers are not satisfied because of the discrepancies between the different sectors, for example, the private and public sector employees, uh, as well as having a large number of citizens and employees who uh, reside in the country and who do not have access to the retirement or um, social protection uh, schemes. So um, this system, this scheme guarantees uh, the, uh, this right to everyone and not only to formal employees. We wanted to, uh, to provide inclusive uh, coverage uh, through a, a social protection levels that cover everyone and that include all of the life cycle risks. Uh, this um, scheme had been developed in order to provide inclusive coverage, uh, sustainability, and that matches uh, the financial capacity of the uh, parties uh, with uh, high uh, financial uh, efficiency. With regard to uh, the non uh, uh, omanis as mentioned in the report, uh, for the first time, they have access to social protection schemes through the um, occupational um, diseases and illnesses uh, level, which will be applied in the next uh, three um, uh, years, the maternity uh, um, benefit, uh, paternal benefit in uh, three uh, uh, months, uh, the uh, saving scheme, which is compulsory and which replaces the end of service uh, benefit. It, it used to be um, to be paid by the employer and it's going to be covered by the social protection scheme. And it uh, also provides for um, the uh, disability and old age uh, pension. And of course, uh, we have a few future plans to enlarge uh, the coverage that I might be spoken speaking about it later on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Shabir, for this. Um, let's move to Stefan now. Uh, Stefan, as I was mentioning, you worked uh, extensively on the political economy of labor markets and, and reforms in the GCC. Can you, can you tell us more from your perspective on the linkages between social protection and broader labor market policy in the region and how uh, can those linkages enable or, or conversely hinder uh, the social protection reforms uh, we have been discussing today? Great. Uh, thanks, Luca. And first, I want to say it's a really fantastic report. It's really seminal. And it really, I think, puts put the whole regional uh, labor and migration management debate on, on a whole new level. So, so I really want to felicitate you for that. Um, so um, Social protection uh, specifically and, and broader labor rights and regulation in the region are really interdependent and they really need each other to, to work well. And the two kind of key dimensions of labor rights for migrants in the GCC that I think are the most relevant, as also alluded to in the report, is first the right of mobility between employers. So uh, essentially uh, the move away from the sponsorship system that ties expatriate workers to uh, a given employer and prevents them from moving uh, to a new firm. And the other is residency rights that are independent of employment. Um, and uh, using, for example, those mobility rights uh, to move from one firm to another really requires complementary social security, requires arrangements uh, like end of services benefits that are independent of, uh, of the employer, an unemployment insurance system that's independent of the employer. Uh, otherwise, you can't deal with the periods of uncertainty during disputes with your with your current employer or the periods of uncertainty during job job changes, so you really need basic social safety and security to facilitate the mobility that that a modern labor market needs. Uh, conversely, it's much easier; it's much more effective uh, 
to use uh, social benefits and welfare arrangements if you have basic labor rights security. Uh, so uh, employer-provided benefits, for example, will be easier to claim if workers have a credible exit option, if they can say, I can move to a different employer if uh, I can't claim my rights here, and if uh, their current employer can't just threaten them with expelling them from the country. Uh, so I think uh, labor rights and uh, social welfare entitlements are really complementary in that regard, and they, they need each other. There are also broader labor market policy uh, ramifications of social welfare for um, foreign workers. Uh, one is that uh, nationalization, Gulfization, Omanization, Saudization, whatever, it becomes much easier if uh, the rights and the related labor costs are the same for expatriates and nationals to the extent that there's differentiation that nationals are entitled to more, they become less attractive as employees for workers. So just uh, from the perspective of that very, very important policy objective, creating a level playing field between uh, foreign residents and nationals is absolutely essential. And also more broadly, uh, from the government's economic uh, development perspective, labor rights and social protection have been shown to correlate positively with productivity. So in the age of all the, the visions, the, the big uh, diversification agendas. It's, it's very important to also uh, level up the workforce in that regard. So I'll, I'll stop right here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this, uh, Stefan. Just a quick follow-up, perhaps. Uh, what what do you think the momentum, how do we think we could, we should build on, on the momentum to secure some of these policy changes based on the way you understand the region? Well, I think I would probably make the point that I just uh, made a minute ago more prominently that those are uh, things that really help with economic modernization and with diversification and increasing productivity and also with attracting a high uh, caliber labor force to the region. I think the region wants to move beyond the old low-skilled uh, sponsorship basic labor model and we, we should I think push that not just from a labor rights perspective but from an economic development perspective. And I think this is what has driven a lot of the reforms in the UAE I don't think this was necessarily just kind of uh, selfless uh, adherence to ILO uh, uh, conventions. I think this was very much we have to compete for talent and offer the same uh, sort of environment that uh, places like Canada or Australia offer, at least to, you know, to some extent, to, to foreign migrants. Indeed, th thanks for that. Understanding those drivers of domestic policy reform is, I think, is key to to really give sustain sustain to sustaining this this ongoing reform uh, thrives. Um, um, so so let, let's maybe move on to Tanya, um, Tanya IOM, including in the report that we, we are launching together today, has has worked a lot on one of the areas that we didn't get to cover into much detail in the presentation so far, which relates to supporting collaboration between countries of destination and countries of origin to help ensure social protection benefits and contributions are more portable across countries. And I see also there are some questions in the chat that sort of uh, uh, relate to that, to that question. In your opinion, what, what should countries of destination and origin do? Um, what role should they play in advancing this, this agenda further? Thank you very much for this question, Luca. Um, I think um, I would like to maybe start with uh, the Global Compact on Migration and Objective 22, which is actually about uh, countries of origin and countries of destination working together to ensure that uh, social benefits um, and earned benefits are transferable. And I think um, 
we have in the framework of yet another joint project also worked together on working on a model for migrant welfare funds. So this is not, of course, to replace or to let, let's say, countries of destination out of their primary responsibility to provide for social protection for migrant workers. But as we have heard, in the absence of access to social protection for whatever reason, because of lack of awareness, lack of monitoring, lack of uh, enforcement, I think it is an important model to also consider. And uh, I think um, on the African side, uh, there are already some countries that are investing um, in feasibility studies and setting up such initial migrant welfare funds following the model of uh, the Philippines in order to ensure that their migrant workers do have access to, let's say, at least the minimum social protection that um, that they want uh, that they want them to afford. So um, I think countries of origin and countries of destination can very formally cooperate on access to social protection next to what has also been mentioned by Leah and by Shahra in her initial remarks. Um, that we have seen in this report also informal social protection provision by migrant associations, embassies of countries of origin, and so on and so forth. So yes, I think um, as a start, those would be maybe two forms of more formal and more informal cooperation of countries of origin with countries of destination to provide migrant workers with social protection. Thank you. Thank you for this, Tania. And I, I think indeed uh, we are seeing also working jointly on this file, how, how important is it to, to bring countries of origin and destination um, around the table on, on this topic, on this very topic of social protection, looking at the broad range of instruments that exist. You spoke to some of them and also how the international labor standards provide a compass also to guide those conversations to orient. You mentioned the global compact, um, as well as, of course, in other um, social security standards. So maybe to close this first panel, I would like to go back to Shabib for uh, some final thoughts on the Oman reforms. Um, Shabib, we, we heard in the presentation that there are often quite some discrepancies between policies, the way they look on paper and how they're actually implemented in practice. What's your vision in Oman to ensure that the recent policy reforms, um, which are groundbreaking, will lead to an effect, effective access and enhance well-being of migrant workers in practice? What do you plan? How do you plan to go from here? Personally, I believe that policies can be implemented and practiced as long as the coverage is inclusive and addresses the root causes. We don't have short-term solutions. For example, with the social protection scheme, it is probably based on discrepancies between pension schemes, but that was those were symptoms for a larger problem, which is the lack of a social protection umbrella that is interconnected. So there was a decision to have a radical solution. We didn't want to address only pension schemes, but the entire components of the social protection scheme. And personally, I can tell you that most policies do not apply in practice because of the political interference, um, uh, interference and the technical aspect 
context and, and the design of the social protection. However, in our experience in the Sultanate, we wanted to unify and harmonize the pension schemes. We wanted um, the finances to be provided to support uh, the uh, uh, scheme. But that means uh, that we would address the problem with another problem. So the technical team insisted on having a social protection scheme that is a right to everyone. It's not only to be limited to the employed Omanis. And this did happen, thank God. With regard to our future plans, we uh, confirm that as a social protection fund, we believe that the fund's role is to provide a decent life to everyone, Omanis and non-Omanis together. So even in uh, schemes that do not cover non-Omanis, like the old age and disability and death, they are supported through a saving um, scheme. And uh, the obje objective is not only to provide a financial compensation, uh, but the uh, ultimate objective is to connect the saving uh, scheme to the uh, pension scheme for the non-Omanis. Therefore, there would be an extension of the social protection uh, scheme. And this is how we can guarantee social protection to the non-Omanis and their families for a decent life for everyone. And uh, if the non-Omani uh, 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 is not employed and can benefit from an unemployment benefit, then they would be uh, supported through the non-employment insurance uh, branch. Now, with regard to the medical insurance, which is to be uh, provided by the employer according to the law for the non-Omanis, now discussions are uh, conducted with the governments in order to have a medical insurance uh, coverage within uh, the uh, fund to cover everyone, including the non-Omanis. Now, of course, uh, there would be arrangements to be made, but I think that in a local partnership and international cooperation would be able to overcome all challenges. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Shabib, and really thanks, um, uh, Stefan and Tanya, for for your insights. Uh, we move on. I think we've heard uh, about the importance of linking policy reforms with implementation. We heard about the critical role of sending and origin and, and countries of destination on the topic, and also on the need to embed these discussions in the broader landscape if we want to labor market reforms in the region, the kafala reforms, the nationalization, and the shift away from a low wage, sort of low productivity model, you know, creating level playing field. So I think we'll come back to all this, um, perhaps in the Q&A segment at the end, for the time being, uh, back to you, Christy. Thank you so much for that first panel. That's been excellent. Uh, to explore access to entitlements in practice, I would like to invite uh, our two, two panelists. Uh, we have Vani Saraswathi, uh, the Editor-at-Large and Director of Projects at MigrantRights.org, which is a GCC-based advocacy organization established to advance the rights of migrant workers. And we also are delighted to have Sarah Baba, uh, the Associate Director for Research at the Center of Regional and International Studies at Georgetown University in Qatar. So thank you both very much for being here with me today. Uh, and I'd like to start off um, by asking actually uh, both of you, we didn't get much chance to discuss the nuances of how the experiences of migrant workers differ based on gender, ethnicity, country of origin, occupation, and so on. And there were quite a few questions in the chat about that. So uh, I'd like to ask, could you tell us a bit about some of the categories of migrant workers that you found often face additional disadvantages in practice? Uh, let's, let's start with you, Zahra, if that's okay. 
So thank you so much, Christy. Um, it's a great question. I think I'll start by just echoing what some of the other speakers have said, which is I'm, I'm really delighted to see this report. I read it with great interest, and I think it provides us with some really sound insight into an area that has been very understudied. I mean, for the past 15 or 16 years, I've been researching labor migration governance in the region and issues of social protection we just haven't had a good grasp of. So it's great to see this report and I hope this kind of work continues. So while as the report suggests, and as we are aware, the conditions for migrant workers across the region are not great when it comes to ensuring that they are able to access their social protection rights. Uh, one of the things we have to also bear in mind is that we cannot conflate all migrants into a single category when considering um, their vulnerabilities in terms of being denied or deprived of their social protection rights. And I think this was caveated when uh, the report was discussed earlier that we have this fascinating case of the Nepali migrants, but perhaps they, we cannot generalize that to other, other nationalities. There are multiple uh, factors that, that go that one has to consider when looking into particular areas of additional vulnerability for migrant workers in the region. And I don't have five hours, so I'm going to be short and sweet and address a couple of the ones that I think are critical. As the report already points out, gender is a considerable factor. Um, female migrants have their own sets of particular vulnerabilities when it comes to both their social needs, their healthcare needs, their needs in terms of disability, unemployment, long-term social security. And the labor market across the region for migrants is highly gendered. Uh, female migrants primarily occupy jobs in certain sectors, which are in, in any case slightly more marginalized, like the domestic sector, as well as the service sector, when all workers tend to find it harder to um, to meet their, their social protection needs. So, so, so gender also, though, however, there are many intersections and a second category and a factor that I, I think we really need to think of is age. Age responsive uh, social uh, protection programs are essential globally and they're certainly essential for migrants in the Gulf. Um, women, for example, as they age, well, women migrants generally, frankly, have quite different life trajectories when it comes to their migration experiences. They may be uh, coming for shorter durations, returning home to manage family needs, childcare needs, and returning back, which means that in the long term, they can face considerable challenges when it comes to social security and you know, uh, elder, elder sort of the pensions you need through social protection later in life. Um, the country of origin, of course, is also a factor which has been discussed already, but there are great variations between what different migrants from different countries can access when they're in the Gulf. And while the Philippines case is, is a great one to think of because that the Philippines government has actually tried to address gaps in the region by creating their own uh, response through the Overseas Workers Welfare Fund, the fact remains that this is once again putting the onus of responsibility back onto sending states and back onto migrants themselves as these are contributions are based on migrants rather than the employers in the Gulf. But of course, there are benefits to those kinds of bilateral arrangements or sending country, uh, you know, 
ascending country programs, but again, mainly to highlight that country of origin is a factor to consider. Occupation sector also is, 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 is really important to think of because there are certain job categories where the risks are, for certain things are higher. So obviously in construction work, um, this is risky work, outdoor work, more people in the sector while they're younger and technically healthier, they're more prone to serious injuries, forms of illness and disability. So on the one hand, while workers in this sector need an additional layer of protection um, against those uh, negative consequences, uh, under changing laws in Qatar, actually, and other GCC countries, there has been greater focus on occupational safety and health for construction workers, but other categories of workers who also may face consequences, such as domestic workers, are not covered by these additional protections. And then the last one I'm going to focus on, because I think this gets missed a lot, is visa status. We, we do not focus enough on irregularity across the region. And again, this is a problem with data. Um, however, we know that irregular work and particularly the free visa arrangements across the six GCC states are, are high. And so this immediately has huge impacts uh, for, for those workers who are unable to access um, most form the social protection under this. And I'll, I'll stop now. Thank you. Those are all great points. Uh, I believe uh, Vani might actually pick up on some of them too. I'm going to hand over to you, Vani, for the same question. I think we might actually, Bani, I'm not sure if you can hear us, but it looks like we may have lost you. Uh, please do come in if I'm missing you. Otherwise, and um, I think I'll go right back uh, to Zara with uh, another question. Um, yes, let's come. Let's come back to you, and hopefully, Vani can come back on the line. Uh, but Zahra, your some of your research has recently focused on. Uh, occupational risks and health inequities for migrant workers in the GCC, mainly in, in Qatar and UAE and, and Saudi Arabia, um, where your studies are focused. So in your view, we would love to hear what action you feel is needed to improve social protection for migrant workers in the region. Uh, and especially it would be interesting to also hear what you think is the role of wider stakeholders, so beyond just the, the GCC governments and, and GCC citizens. Uh, sure, Christy. I, I hope we do get Vani back because her perspective as someone who's directly working in um, the advocacy realm and so closely with migrants is critical. But sure. Um, so again, there there can be a very elaborate response to your to the second to to question two because obviously there are multiple um, multiple things, multiple areas where actions are needed. But I think I I'm going to highlight three of those which have already been referred to. Um, to echo a point that Stefan made in the in the earlier panel, I think we have to recognize that there is that without an enhancement of the overall status of migrant workers in the region, so strengthening and reinforcing protections that are provided under labor law and um, and and also in terms of the visa arrangements, 
we, I mean, I think this is critical and an ongoing and continuous task if we are to also try to enhance rights to social protection. So the reforms we've already seen underway in several of the GCC countries to change the kafala, to change the visa sponsorship arrangements, to um, ensure that migrant workers have the opportunity to be more mobile, to change their places of employment, and efforts to enhance wages and generally overall enhance the status and rights of migrants, I think is critical because without that, migrants will not be able to actively, frankly, pursue their rights to social protection. What frequently goes missing is that gap between law enforcement and migrants' own intentions. Migrants' self-positionality, um, especially migrants in the lower income and lower wage sectors, uh, have hesitancy about activating their the rights that are due to them and that they legitimately can access. So it's it's you know it's not just that you're denied the sick leave or that you're unable to access the medical facility when you're unwell, but it's the fact that you want to be perceived as a healthy worker by your employer because you're worried that you will lose your job and be deported. So, so again, I think that for me is a critical point. Um, we've, we're, we're talking about social protection, but without active uh, you know, sort of concern around the overall status of migrants, um, we're not going to get to that stage. The, the second thing, but, but have, having said that, I also think it's really important to be cognizant of the fact that in this world we're in right now in the Gulf with changes occurring to labor law, um, particularly the, the changes to the kafala, which have allowed for you know, mobility for workers, we now, this means we really have to reevaluate how social protection measures are instituted in law. So, for example, with the end of service benefit that we've been talking about, if you are, that's usually tied to a minimum duration of one year of employment or to seeing out a contract. If, if workers are now changing jobs more frequently, then what happens? How do we ensure that they still somehow benefit from the time they work with each employer? Anyway, those are more complicated things, but the fact is those shifts have to, we have to reevaluate those as the reforms are also taking place. A second, um, the thing that I think is very important and which is already mentioned in the refor in the report that you all have put together is awareness raising. And this is awareness raising for both employers and workers. I still think there's a gap, especially among smaller companies or medium-sized enterprises on exactly what social protection is, what it really, what what, what the meaning behind it is beyond um beyond the sort of employer liability laws that exist. So I think that there's a need to have a greater awareness of this for those uh, for employers, but also for workers themselves. And while we know that there are the existing uh, barriers that prevent migrants from uh, accessing the rights that they get under law, a lack of um, understanding of you know, complex bureaucracies around this in the region, not being fully well versed in your the rights due to you language issues, all of that. But beyond that, I'm actually saying, I think it's also essential to do things like enhanced programs around financial literacy and like strategic financial planning. Um, many of many migrants I've interviewed over the years have thought the end of service benefit is just like, you know, something that they will immediately, they don't think of it as something that's about ensuring them financial stability into the future. So there, there needs to be some investment and I think employers are well or could be involved in that process. And then you know, my, my third, um, I think, important action to be taken is the need to 
add migrants' voice. We talk a lot, lot about migrants' bargaining power, um, migrants' greater representation, which of course are critical, but I mean adding migrants' voice for, into this process of identifying um, what their social protection needs and challenges are. We all do it through our interviews, we do it through our research, but I mean, integrating them into organizations where they are really well-placed to not only identify the challenges, but find ways of working on them. There are certainly nascent efforts like this visible across the Gulf. I've seen migrant-led organizations that I think go very far towards producing uh, important, you know, important results. Hopefully we have Vani back. Yes, unfortunately it looks like we may have lost Vani and I was reminded that she she had said she was having problems with power cuts. Um, so completely uh, can't be helped and we are really sorry not to have her. If she does join, we'll, we'll go right to her. Um, but as you said, her, her perspective is really valuable. So um, it's a shame, shame to lose her at this moment, but let's hope she can come back. And in the meantime, we're gonna go right into the Q and A. Uh, and I think we have a lot of questions, but I think I'm going to start with you first, Stefan. Uh, we have a question on the political economy of the GCC countries being an obstacle to expanding social protection. Uh, and the, the question is that the richer GCC countries depend more on migrant labour and they have issued visions for economic transitions. So how are the sustainability challenges of social protection being addressed particularly when most of these economic visions focus on the expansion of, of unreliable sectors such as real estate and tourism. And that's, a, that's the question word for word. I'll hand it over to you for a response. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, that, that's a tricky one. Uh, but I do think that even within real estate and tourism, there's a lot of uh, scope for, for upgrading skill levels and, and technology. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of scope for uh, upgrading labor rights and welfare provision. And uh, it's true that some of those activities are heavily seasonal. Uh, I guess the Hajj in Saudi Arabia and there are some particular very large construction projects that only take a certain period and then uh, potentially the workforce isn't used anymore. And I think perhaps for those very exceptional, time-limited or very seasonal uh, type of labor demands, there could be an arrangement for a sort of temporary uh, work visa that uh, you know then, then doesn't lend itself to a transition to uh, uh, longer term residency status but uh, i think apart from that all the social security and safety entitlements in that arrangement should uh, should and could essentially be the same uh, and uh, th those governments uh, have actually pushed to um, also upgrade technological and labor standards in those sectors uh, and I think tourism in particular for, I mean, of course, there's not that much going on during the very hot summer months, but for the rest of the year, it's a fairly, it's a fairly continuous sector. So you do need a permanent workforce. And I think the same logic of upgrading the, the, the rights and entitlements uh, in, in those sectors apply as in other sectors. Great, thank you. Um, we also have some questions. We have some questions on uh, the reforms in Oman. So I'd like to invite Shabib to um, to comment on, on those. Uh, so firstly, whether domestic workers were included uh, or will be included in um, the Social Protection Fund there. Uh, and Shabib, if, if it's all right, we also have some questions about bilateral agreements to think about portability of benefits. 
Um, so I wondered if you could comment on whether uh, the government of Oman has been looking at all at, at uh, developing or strengthening bilateral agreements to allow for benefits to be carried back home to countries of origin. Um, if you have any comments on that too. Uh, and if you can just, I know we, <laughs> I know it's difficult, but if we can try to keep to just a couple of minutes uh, on that, please. Thank you. Thank you very much for the questions. As regards domestic workers, of course, the social protection law was very flexible and has also covered the possibility of including any categories in the future. In principle, all workers have been covered in all sectors, whether in the private uh, sector, public sector, or even in the military. And there is also a plan to include domestic workers through uh, future decrees. And this will be part of any future plans to provide protection for uh, all types of workers. As regards bilateral agreements, the purpose of the Provident Fund is not to provide an end-of-service income, but to provide pension uh, salaries through bilateral agreements with different countries where there is a possibility of transferring uh, uh, the different uh, benefits from one country to the other. So far, we are still working on this, and we hope that we will continue to cooperate with the ILO uh, as regards future bilateral agreements. And I believe that the Provident Fund will be activated within three years, and we will have uh, bilateral agreements with many countries. But it requires further studies and uh, further foreign relations and cooperation with stakeholders such as the ILO. Thank you very much. Thank you, um, I actually would like to go to, to the ILO. I'm going to come over to you, Leia, uh, to also uh, comment on the, the role of uh, bilateral labour agreements. Um, we had uh, a question from uh, Marius Oliver from the IOM in the um, uh, in, and, and consultant, um, and we have a question in, in the Q&A box. Um, about uh, about these uh, bilateral agreements and how um, uh, how countries of origin from Asia, Africa, and Latin America have commenced with extending their own social protection frameworks to migrant workers abroad, um, as well as uh, quite quite a bit of work on this area from uh, entities such as the African Union, uh, trying to provide guidelines. So, can you comment um, on on how? the role that these bilateral measures and also unilateral measures from countries of origin plays in, in this wider picture. Thank you, Christy. For bilateral agreements, of course, it's a seminal topic, it's a seminal issue, and we're always, uh, we always go back to this point. It's, of course, uh, essential and important, but uh, we can say that uh, maybe we can say it's a bit in the horizon, because first and foremost, these bilateral agreements are supposed to guarantee the portability and exportability of benefits of migrant workers, the ones that they, let's say, benefit from in countries of destination. However, we have to first make sure that they have, they have legal entitlements to these benefits first, before we, uh, you know, uh, focus on the bilateral agreements, because if there are no, uh, let's say, uh, contributory uh, benefits or entitlements legally, what will be the essential use of these bilateral agreements? So it's a bit um, 
a step forward or a step um, uh, forward. Um, so first and foremost, the, 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 the reforms have to happen in the GCC to move away from employer liability schemes, to involve national institutions. And this is when bilateral agreements become absolutely key. Um, so this is in short. Thank you. Leia, um, I uh, would also, we've had quite a few comments in the chat on COVID and uh, kind of the role that COVID did or did not play uh, in, in strengthening um, conditions and improving conditions for migrant workers in the long term. Uh, so, um, Tanya, I would uh, like to invite you, if it's all right, to just uh, share maybe maybe one or, or max two reflections on kind of whether COVID has been a game changer uh, in the, the rights for, for migrant workers in this region. And obviously, for those who want to read more after that, there is a whole section on the report uh, in the report on this. Right. So, you know, without going much into the details of what's covered in the report, I think uh yeah i would say COVID 19 has been a game changer in the sense that uh, we have seen that the ones that were mostly affected um during this crisis were those that typically fall between all the chairs so here we are really talking about migrants that work in the informal sector and that no one really feels responsible that they should be covering them. So they all depended on humanitarian assistance. And that again was primarily provided um, by migrant associations, by embassies, and um, to some extent by the governments. But at least what we have seen in the rest of the MENA region, so I'm referring more to, to North African countries, these efforts of governments to extend social protection to workers in the informal sector were mostly covering nationals, not the non-nationals. So I think COVID-19 in that sense has really shown a huge spotlight on the target group that should really be of our biggest concern, and those are the irregular migrant workers that are working in the informal sector. So I think I would like to use this opportunity to commend the efforts of the government of Oman. I find that really remarkable um, that uh, this, you know, that your government um, has made this effort to come up with a solution which is inclusive of the nationals and the non-nationals. I think that is a very good foundation to build on. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, and actually, on that note, um, we're short on time, so I'm going to hand over. Uh, well, first, I'd like to thank all of our speakers and also all of you in the audience for such great questions, comments, and, and also your attendance. Um, and we will still keep trying to answer as many uh, in writing as we possibly can of the remaining questions, but we do hope you found it a useful discussion. Um, I'd like to let you know before I hand over the closing remarks that the report has is now live. It's It's been launched today. It's available on the website and the link will be posted in the chat. So please do take a look and we'd love to hear from you with, with thoughts and feedback and questions. Uh, and for final reflections, I will now pass to Patricia Barandon, who's the head of section migration and forced displacement 
at the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation, who've been a fantastic partner on this research project and absolutely instrumental in, in making uh, all of these findings possible. So over to you, Patricia. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting us to this launch. I, I can hear from, from all of you that you have found it important to have this baseline report. And this was exactly the purpose why we thought that we should engage on this topic and start engaging by providing a baseline. So I'm very pleased that we have achieved that objective. And gen more generally on social protection, we have heard it from, from several of the speakers and interventions. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a, a wake-up call in terms of putting social protection at the center of, of our work for SDC Switzerland. We have been working for many, many years on labor migration in the, in the, in the labor migration corridors. And we, uh, I have heard from, from you, Sarah, what I find very important is not to work in isolation, to add the, the topic of social protection while we continue working on decent working conditions, uh, and using the ILO's expertise in terms of setting the standards high and in terms of, of uh, promoting the tripartite dialogue, which is also hosted by the, the ILO. And for us, Switzerland, it will be important to continue having a corridor approach amongst the countries of origin and the countries of destination, including on social protection. And then not only having a tripartite dialogue, I also heard from some of the questions that the private sector is asking, what is specific to the different sectors? And I think it's important and maybe in the future we can include more of the private sector in this conversation because there is specific um, specificities relating to each of this private sector and also uh, the voice of the civil society the self-organizing of the migrant workers and in general the role of the civil society in the region which is something that is very dear to us also at sdc while we're moving this agenda ahead and then also, I think the example of having uh, Oman as a government, which is taking a non-discriminatory approach, a comprehensive approach to social protection, is giving a good example to other countries how such a system could be designed and what the role of governments are in terms of steering this conversation forward. So I want to specifically comment uh, the efforts of Oman and I um, also want to uh, thank the GCC Bureau for tabling social protection reforms and non-discrimination on the regional agenda. Now in terms of SDC, uh, I'm pleased to, to announce that based on this study, we have been already for several months in a conversation about uh, designing a new program across the, the South Asian Middle East corridor, which will look at social protection. And we hope that we can nourish the conversation with the many stakeholders around the table here 
to move the conversation forward. So with that, I want to thank you all, the researchers, the intervenants, everybody who is uh, steering this agenda ahead. And to conclude, I want to say from the side of Switzerland, you, you know that uh, very soon there is a global refugee forum in Geneva, social protection for refugees is on the agenda. We will have next year the global forum on migration and development. Switzerland is going to host a side event on just transition, on social protection and, and uh, I will also go to the COP and I will be on a panel convened by the ILO on just transition. So I want to encourage you all to, to spread the message and, and, and to stay engaged and hopefully to achieve concrete results for migrant workers, which is actually the most important. So thanks a lot and uh, let's stay uh, in touch to continue this journey. Over to you, Christy. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, I That's all we have time for today, sadly. We could have continued the conversation for a lot longer. Um, we're going to keep um, uh, taking into account all the comments that were shared in the Q&A as we go forward with this research. And we encourage you to get in touch directly if you want to, uh, to continue discussing some of these areas. And we will be sharing the event recording, as we mentioned. So do look out for that. Uh, in your email inboxes and on the links uh, of the web pages that we shared. Uh, that's all we have time for, but thank you so much to all our speakers and thank you to the, the audience. Have a good morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are. <laughs>